This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we have to acknowledge you are the first podcast guest ever, and that's 3,500 podcast episodes from Ho Chi Minh City. So uh, (laughs) welcome from Ho Chi Minh City. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, sure. I'm from Ho Chi Minh City, but I'm not very Vietnamese. (laughs) Don't sound very Vietnamese, and my name, Wellid, is not uh, very Vietnamese. That was Claire Warren's. Claire is the founder of a company called Affinia, which generally looks at data and data visualization, but in some pretty unique ways, particularly around SAP reports. I think you'll find this podcast very interesting and a way for you to think about using your own data. I hope you will plan to join me at Compliance Week 2022. I've got a podcast series about some of the presentations entitled Compliance Week 2022 Podcast Series on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Claire Woolledge. Claire has an interesting background, but more interestingly, she is a founder of a company, I hope if I get this right, Alfinia, uh, that does some really interesting data visualizations, particularly around SAP. She's also got a galvanized connection that we're going to explore a little bit for those who know I'm a big galvanized fan. So, Claire, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So we have to acknowledge you are the first podcast guest ever, and that's 3,500 podcast episodes from Ho Chi Minh City. So (laughs) uh, welcome from Ho Chi Minh City. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, sure. I'm from Ho Chi Minh City, but I'm not very Vietnamese. (laughs) Don't sound very Vietnamese. And my name, Wellid, is not uh, very Vietnamese. So, yeah, what am I doing over here? Um, So my professional background, I spent 10 years working at Deloitte. Um, which uh, quite proud of because, you know, most people that go to Deloitte or Big Four and they end up staying like two or three years and then they drop off. And um, So when you get to 10 years, you're like, wow, I made it to 10 years. That's really cool. So I was working there um, basically doing data analytics. So when I first started, I kind of came from a very strange background, really, because I'd done biochemistry before at university. Then I'd gone off to China and been traveling for three years and then I was just like, oh, my God, you know, I need to get a job. <laughs> I need to get a real career. And I thought, I'll go back to graduate recruitment. At that time, I had a boyfriend. He was in IT. And he was earning a stack of money. And I just thought, I'm going to get into IT. I'll get a cell phone. I'll be so amazing. And I, I could afford a cell phone. So I went back home and I went and did a master's in IT. 
And then I was back in that kind of like graduate recruitment profile and I went to some graduate recruitment fairs and I managed to get hired by Deloitte. And I remember starting at Deloitte and I was doing IT audit. And I was like, this is crazy because we're doing all this IT audit. We're doing like checklists. We're doing sampling. Mm -hmm. And the customers are massive. Like they've got so, there's there's so much going on at a customer. We're just taking a sample of 25 invoices. I remember thinking, it's just so weird. Why are we doing this uh, this sampling? And then uh, somebody came up to me after about three months and they said, well, we, two or three people are going to learn about data analytics. What do you think? Do you want to do that? And and I just thought, wow, yeah, it just makes so much sense. Like, why would you even bother with sampling when you can do data analytics on all of the invoices, right? Not just do a few of them. And so uh, I started doing data analytics uh, after three months. And then I just did it all the time, all the way through the 10 years. So after 10 years, got to manager level, which is um, a bit where I hit the ceiling, really, because um, somebody who's definitely not politically correct in there, and I'm not very good with the hierarchy and the, and internal politics and stuff like that. So when you get to the manager level, you, you realize it's not only about working, it's also about relationships and stuff and, uh, and getting on with, uh, you know, with the partners and stuff like that. So, so then I hit off and went and created Ophinia. So created Ophinia in 2010. And um, kind of my goal at that point was just to see if I could actually convince people to use data analytics because it's still on the same topic of like, why is everyone doing sampling? You know, that is like when I left Deloitte, when it's only 15 of us in the data quality integrity department. And, uh, and I was like, what is going, like, why are people still not using data to do their audits? I'm going to go and see if I can convince anybody to, to actually use it. So that, that was what I started off doing in 2010. And I'm actually still doing the same thing today, 12 years later. Um, trying to convince internal auditors to use data analytics. So, yeah, that's my professional background. I guess one thing I could say is that, yeah, I'm a CISA. Um, just before quitting Delight, I did the certified fraud examiner exam. So I'm an ACFE or I'm a CFE. And I think that one is really important because when you're doing data analytics, it matches well with the CFE exam because all those different fraud scenarios that you learn about, uh, and you can think about like how would you actually detect that in the data set. So that was a very good certificate to do. So I'm quite interested in fraud scenarios, how to detect fraud scenarios in data sets. So, so many of the listeners to this podcast are in anti-corruption compliance. And corruption is generally viewed as a subset of fraud, whereas mm-hmm. in fraud, an individual is uh, stealing money from a company and keeping it in corruption Individuals are stealing money from companies, but using it to fund a pot of money to pay a bribe somewhere. Yeah. Uh, And so I wanted to ask you with your CFE certification and your background and now I know of your interest in fraud, do you see an intersection there uh, with the same strategies and tactics you would use to try to uncover um, how people create a pot of money to pay a bribe similar to what you would do if you were looking, uh, doing some type of fraud examination? Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question because a few years back, one of my customers was like, no, no, we're not looking at corruption because corruption is not fraud. And I was like, well, it's kind of the first branch of the fraud treatment, <laughs> never mind. Um, and then we're like, no, no, there's a different department doing that. Um, so corruption is a really interesting one because uh, we also say, you know, it's like it's under the table. It's like, what does that mean? Like, is, is backhand envelopes under the table? It means that 
it's off the books. And then for a while, off the books, even though I didn't really 100% understand what does it off the books mean. But it's like, it's not recorded. So, so we tend to think that with corruption, like you can't detect it with data analytics because it's not recorded. Um, but what I like to remind everyone about is the fact that if you're going to corrupt someone, like so, say, for example, you're a sales manager and you want to get that customer to buy from you, you're probably not going to take it out of your own salary to corrupt them unless you're super generous, right? So, so what you're going to do is you're going to find a way to get that money out of the company. And there are lots of different ways that you can get the money out of the company. It could be like you do very, very high value traveling expense. It could be that you hire their daughter who never comes to work. It could be that you buy a car on fixed assets and you just give it to them. That's a typical one in France. Uh, it could be that you uh, that you let them invoice you twice. If they're uh, a customer, it could be that you give them year-end rebates or something uh, when they don't, when they shouldn't get them, or you give them returns, or you you, you enter a return but they didn't actually really do the return, and then you send them back the payment. Uh, it could be that you give them free products or like zero value sales orders. So there's lots of different ways that we can actually get money out of the company or, or give some kind of advantage to a third party. And uh, even if it's sort of like under the table, um, you know, the under the table bit is probably more in the, in the other sense. It's like when um, they're going to give you a kickback, they might give you an envelope because you've done them a favor, right? So that envelope would be under the table. It's not going to be recorded in your system, but somehow you gave them something first. Otherwise, they wouldn't be giving you that under the table envelope. So, so I think uh, with corruption, because there are so many different ways that the value is leaking out the company, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, to do corruption, um, we really kind of need data analytics to be able to pick up the indicators. Like even it could be something very simple. Say, for example, you have an oil rig in Iraq and you, you know, you really want to get it put there and you're getting a lot of grief from the local government, but you want to get it put there. So then you're just going to think, well, let's just, let's, let's just decide to do a manual journal entry bank out and get the cash out the bank and just do a big manual journal entry, $500 million take the cash out of the bank, give it to the local government so that we can put our oil rig where we need it, right? And I mean, that can be something which is not necessarily a personal fraud. Like you're doing it for the benefit of the company. It's a facilitation payment. But at the end of the day, still, even if you're helping your company, it's still illegal. So you're still risking going to jail for that. So, So in that case, even if it's like $500 million, you still need data analytics to find it. It's like, if you're in a massive company, $500 million might not even be very much. Um, you might have lost different journal entries of very, very high amounts. And it could be quite hard to identify anything like that if you don't have screening going on. So if you have screening going on, for example, uh, unusual persons entering journal entries or round amount journal entries or journal entries that are bank out to loss or bank out suspense account or all these things that you can just screen the data for. Um, it's like, it's like um, people always say to me, we just want to do a proof of concept. Like we, we just want to check a few data analytics that are going to be quick wins to prove 
that this is interesting. And the problem with that is like it's like fishing in the Pacific with a with a with a badminton rat racket, right? Because how much are you going to catch anything if your net's so small? Because there's so many different ways that you can do something like corruption. So if you don't just screen the whole data set on all different ways, then how are you going to see those flags? You know, are you just going to be really lucky to pick up that one particular method that somebody used? Uh, in your proof of concept, probably not. So, yeah, so I think going back to your question, corruption is definitely an area that I think data analytics can help with. So let me uh, maybe take a step back to what I see as a theme developing in this podcast. And it really started with your observation in Deloitte, which was, yes, I can audit these 25 invoices, and I can do a very good job on these 25 invoices. And I will know these 25 invoices in and out. But these 25 invoices may not give me insights into anything other than them, and I may not be able to draw any conclusions, but if I use a data analytics approach, I can uh, analyze a much wider variety of data. And in your current role, you seem to have uh, brought that uh, concept and idea forward. Why do you think, though, that the basic problem that you identified, you know, in your head at Deloitte of why only look at 25 when I can look at a wider variety still is so prevalent with internal audit today? Yeah, that's a a really good question, you know, because I'm always asking myself that same question every day. Is like, why are they just not doing it? You know, and I think it's probably because people think it's much easier than it is. So um, people like they they often ask me for training. Like over the years, I've done a load of ACL training. At one point, when I first started, I was I had a fortunate to have a partner in Morocco and I kept going over there and training everyone in Morocco on ACL and um, all these people learning ACL and it's such a challenge though in the training because you've got 50 people in there and they're trying to learn ACL and you're trying to explain to them you know if you if you want to see um, whether or not you have payments that didn't have invoices or something so you've got your list of payments and then you've got your list of invoices and you want to see the payments that don't match to any invoices, for example, right? A simple, simple idea. Then you have to actually do a join. So you have to take that list of payments and join it to your list of invoices. So then when you're in the training, you're trying to do that example. <laughs> and the problem is you've got people in there. Um, they've never done a VLOOKUP. They've never done a pivot table. They've never done a filter uh, in Excel. So you have to step right back and say, like, okay, so what is the concept of a table, columns, records? What's a key? What's a link? What? Why? You know, and and people they just say, like, it's just. I think like in the training, people get really frustrated and bored because they just think this is this is just so much detail. This is this is too detailed for me. I'm not an IT person. Um, and I'm never going to get to to uh, to that level. It's like just unattainable, maybe. Uh, just haven't got enough background to do it. So I think sometimes what happens is like there's a good initiative, and and we want to start using data analytics. So we say, right, let's train the auditors, give them training, and give them more training. And the ones that haven't got any kind of notion of background idea about things to do with data are completely lost. And 
and and sometimes even even the graphs, you know, sometimes we'll show people like a combo chart where you've got two y-axis, um, and it'll be like the value is on the left and the and the number of documents is on the right, on the y-axis. So you've got two y-axis, and, and I spent like twenty minutes trying to explain that to somebody once because they just couldn't understand that graph, you know. Because it's like they've never seen it before, so it's um, it's kind of a, a long step to go. So I'd say that there's a lot of resistance, um, but there's also a huge wall to climb over before you can actually start doing any data analytics. Um, many heads of internal audit think that they're going to train their staff that don't know anything about data to start making their own data analytics. And those staff often don't want to do it. And I think sometimes it's like there's a stigmatism because it's people, we had it a lot at Deloitte. People would come from Ecole de Commerce, because my, my husband's French, so I spent eight years in the Paris office. Uh, people would come from business school, French, that's Ecole de Commerce. And we put them in data quality and integrity team. And we start trying to get them to make stuff in ACL, you know, like uh, you're going to mm -hmm. check the billing for telecoms companies. So you have to get all the call data records. You have to concatenate them. You have to put them all into one table. Then you have to compare it to the billing documents and the customer contracts and all that stuff. And it's very detailed involved work to make a program that does that kind of thing. And those, those people, most of the people that we had coming into Deloitte that, they're coming from a called the commerce, and the first thing they say is, I don't want to be a programmer. I didn't come here to be a programmer. They don't want to be programmers because they don't think that that's their job. So I think that there, there is a, probably a problem with expectations. There's a problem with uh, resistance a lot from the auditors. And, um, and, and it's just realizing that there is a very high mountain to climb before we get to anything that is usable, really, or that's going to give us a real impact or real benefit, it's like when you learn a musical instrument, you start playing the piano, it's painful for the first few years. Right? <laughs> After a while, you get good at it, and then it gets exciting. But there's that barrier, and I think that people may be not ready to, to get past the barrier, or they're not forced to, or there's maybe not enough incentive for them to actually have to do it um, then, yeah, it takes the rare ones that are actually going to do it. So you've written a book entitled Data Analytic Secrets. <laughs> um, do, does that book tell people or give them instruction or insight on how to shift their thinking? Or is it simply uh, some of the insights that you've gleaned in your sort of data analytics career as opposed to other parts of your career? Um, okay, so the book... The book that I've written, I've got a copy here. Uh, <laughs> we did actually start, like, when the first time I wrote it, the whole idea was just, uh, okay, so if you want to do data analytics on SAP, what kind of fields and tables would you need per test? That was it. And then as I started, like, writing, I was like, no, it's going to be too boring. And then um, I started adding other things. So actually it starts off with kind of the story um, about, you know, how would you get your team into data analytics? And I'm um, just looking at it now. It's like it starts off with a framework. First of all, there's an introduction that kind of explains, you know, like why would you even bother? So it's kind of like 
what's the point? Why would you even bother doing data analytics? And why is it so important to do it? And then there's like a framework about how would you actually get your team off the ground into data analytics? And I think that's kind of a reflection of the companies that I've been trying to help and the heads of internal audit that I've been trying to help. And again and again, most of their audit team are rejecting the idea of doing data analytics. They, they don't want to shy away from it. And I, and I feel like it's always a softly, softly approach, you know, um, let people decide for themselves, let them uh, want to do it. <laughs> or like, um, I'm a bit more aggressive than that. I'm like, you just have to tell them to do it, right? Because, because at the coffee shop, they'll tell you like, yeah, but it's not clear. Like, do we have to do it? Uh, we don't have to do it. Because if we don't have to do it, I'm going home, right? You know what I mean? So people are not always 100% a million times motivated by their jobs, right? It uh, depends who you are um, and what kind of, you know, uh, is it your company or you're just you're doing a job that because you like traveling or something. So if you don't, in a way, sometimes people need a, a push. And, and one thing that I say at the beginning of the book is like, it's like if you give people access to the gym for free, they might go once or twice, but it's really hard to change people's habits. It's not like they suddenly got free access, they're going to go every single day for the next five years. People don't change like that because they've got their habits, they've got their ways of doing things, and it's very hard to change the habits. So it's, but it's easier if you have um, a coach that's going to push them. And, and I really like, you know, if I'm trying to do some exercise or something, if I have a coach that's yelling in my ear, I'm going to do a lot more than if I'm on my own. So, um, so I think that, you know, the framework about like how do you actually get into data analytics, that's, that's really important, uh, giving a bit of vision. And then, and then it starts going into technical stuff. It's all about like, you know, what kind of graphs would you use for what? Um, and then it goes like business process by business process is like, how do you do the data analytics and what are all the data analytics that you would even do for each business process? Because, we also find that like, people are a bit lost and like not really sure why we would do it. What's the point? So then we go through like, you know, financial reporting, what are all the must-have data analytics you absolutely want to do? Especially like you start off with the first one is like reconcile your general ledger to the bank statement. That that's like the first must-have one because people don't realize, but it's so easy just to enter a manual journal entry adjustment for the bank. And every month. And um, and so it's going to match. Like if you don't look at the totals, it's going to be the same. So no one's going to notice, right? So if you don't do things like that as an auditor, you're never going to see that actually there's a big gap between your bank statement and general ledger. It's just that someone's putting through adjustments and making it look right. So that was that's like the first one. So for each business process, we then go through and say like, these are all the things we think are must-have and these uh, the risks that they cover. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Claire Warledge. Here is one reason uh, for the use of data analytics. Mm. In June 2020, the United States Department of Justice released a document entitled Update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. Okay. And in that document, for the first time, the U.S. Department of Justice mandated that chief compliance officers and corporate compliance functions have access to all corporate data, mm. not simply compliance mm. data, but all corporate data. And the reason uh, they mandated that was so that the compliance function could assess uh, corporate data across all silos. So many chief compliance officers, myself included, have a legal background. My ability to work with numbers 
is what might be termed extraordinarily limited. I can occasionally add two plus two with a calculator, but that's about the extent of it. And so the question chief compliance officers often have are twofold. One, how do I get access to it? And two, well, three, how do I get access to it? What does it mean? And how do I use it? Mm-hmm. And it's always struck me that, and, and so there's a large commentary of, well, we have to hire data scientists. We have to bring in all this outside talent. Um, it's going to be very costly. It's going to be a major shift for compliance. And I've maintained that, why don't you walk down the hall if you're back in the office and go talk to the head of internal audit and say, can you help me here? Mm. And um, mm. I think there's a great in-corporate or in-house resource for the compliance professional in the world of data, and that's internal audit. And so I wanted to perhaps pose that question to you. Do you see internal audit as at least part of the solution that the compliance function could use for data analytics? Or do you think that um, the corporate internal audit function really needs to, to rethink their approach going forward? Yeah, that's an interesting point because I was talking to Dr. Rainer Lentz earlier today. He's uh, written quite a lot of articles on internal audit. And he was saying to me, you know, that internal audit should really be seen as an innovative bunch who are pushing through to get technology used um, and then helping the rest of the group, the organization, to use that technology. Um, so that that was quite an interesting point that he had there, you know, because he's kind of saying like people don't really see the value of internal audit, but internal audit is there always trying to show that they're giving value back to the organization. And I think that internal auditors in general, at least they are quite flexible because they're always in one project out and in and out and in and out and, you know, and facing different topics and challenges and things like that. So you do find a lot of innovative people in internal audit. And if you are in a big group, then you probably would have hopefully a data analytics team in the internal audit department, maybe for about 20, 30% of organizations. So if you've got one in there, then uh, they would be very knowledgeable for sure about um, how to get data. Then maybe they've got the data already, you know, and you can even just uh, use that data as well um, for different analytical purposes. Um, some of our customers, they've got lots of different people analyzing SAP data and they keep pulling the same SAP data again and again and again, different departments. And we're like, well, you know, you could just kind of like start using the same data set, uh, might be useful. So yeah, no, I think that, um, internal audit has a role to play in the sense of being innovative and, being a group that are moving from project to project within the organization. So if compliance came up to them and said, you know, we've got this project, do you want to help? I'm sure most internal audit directors would be super excited about that, both for their own learning and also to show they're giving value. So you've mentioned, uh, I have to call it SAP, uh, several times. Mm. And uh, one of the things that intrigued me about your organization Affinia is that you work with SAP data to help develop visualizations of that data. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that part of your work. Okay. So uh, it's like there are different parts of data analytics, right? You've got to get the data out of SAP. We call that the A phase. Then you've got to format it so that you can actually use it. So we call that B, B phase. 
and then you want to actually do some audit tests or something with it. So that's, that's what we call the C phase, that's the test phase. In the C phase, is um, we used to use ACL as well. Like, I was a real ACL geek for years. Like for about 15 years, I was doing ACL every single day for like 12 hours a day. And um, we used to get all of our audit test results out of ACL, put them in Excel files, and and just use those Excel files as like the basis of what we found, right? But then one of my first customers said to me, well, now we started using visualization. And um, so I had to start getting into visualization. <laughs> and um, and uh, the advantage of visualization is instead of showing someone an Excel spreadsheet in a table, you can show them pretty pictures and they can actually play with those uh, on the screen. It's a bit more fun and interactive. And so I think it's more engaging. People don't want to go through a boring spreadsheet, but if you show them a nice looking dashboard, they're much more likely to, to actually have a look at it. And it will summarize what you found as well. So if you find like duplicate payments, okay, that's fine. You've got a list of duplicate payments, but if you can show that 90% of them were happening in one particular day, um, most of them were done by this particular user, you know, stuff like that. You can see trends with the graphs. So visualization is very nice thing to use. Uh, and then you can find like scatter plots, for example, if you see that there are general entry accounting schemes that are super rare. So there's their, their frequency of occurrence is low compared to the value. Um, and even for supplier movements, if you have a supplier that has a very low frequency of transactions, but very high value, those type of things that stand out as outliers on a scatter plot very easily for you. Same with um, travel and expense. If you have per travel and expense mm -hmm. type, so for example, flight, airfare, if you've got one person that's got an air ticket for $50,000, it's going to stand out way above all the rest. And, and that's the kind of thing that you can see very easily with a visualization. Um, and you can put lots of little graphs with pretty colors on the same page. So that stuff jumps out at you like that. So I think you can get a lot quicker. So the uh, I'd like to ask now about what do you see as the intersection of internal audit and internal controls? Because okay. <laughs> I talk about internal, I, I uh, sort of evangelize that internal controls are really the backbone of every compliance program. Mm -hmm. In your world, is there an overlap? Does the director of internal audit work with uh, the director of internal controls? Or are they really separate and, to, and more siloed? So they should be separate in a way because internal audit should be independent and objective. So you don't want internal audit really making the internal controls, right? You want them to come along and have an independent objective view. But sometimes what happens is um, internal audit doing something innovative and they make a whole of dashboards, for example, and um, some maybe some automated data audit tests. And then at some point they, they realize that actually that'd be really useful for internal control and they might hand them over to internal control and say, look, we made all these. these. This could be useful for you to use. But internal audits should remain independent and objective. Like, you know, they, should, they shouldn't be the ones implementing the controls. Then they'll come along and try and audit them. They'll be like, oh, no, I don't need to audit that. That's, that's perfect. I made it myself. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
Uh, I know that uh, feeling as well. Let me turn, uh, change the focus just a little bit yeah. to your work with Galvanize. Um, yeah. I've had several Galvanize people on the podcast, uh, a little bit different than compliance. Nevertheless, I see it as a complete adjunct uh, in the GRC space. But what is your work with Galvanize and how do you help support both the company and users of their products? Okay, so um, I'm like a galvanized uh, child, really, because when I started at Deloitte, we were using ACL. That's the tool of galvanized. And um, so using it all the time at Deloitte and, and then even after, like thanks to ACL, that's how I got the customers that I have still today uh, back in 2010 because I actually quit Deloitte, worked for uh, Galvanize or ACL time for three months and then created my mm-hmm. company um, because there's some kind of tax break when you do something like that in France. Um, so, so I did it that way. And uh, so I, got, I was actually an employee of Galvanize for three months and, and then I was helping their customers to learn ACL, implement ACL, um, and doing loads of training in the beginning, the early days of Affinia, it was loads of training about ACL uh, and then writing a lot of scripts on ACL. So uh, I think that for me, Galvanize and ACL, it's, it's very good for compliance because they have a very strong workflow system in there. And from their uh, governance risk control platform, you can have triggers that are very easy to set up. You don't even need to be in IT to be able to set up those triggers. And the trigger will be like, for example, a transaction over $10 million, um, and it will send a trigger, send an email to somebody. They receive an email with a link, and then they can go back into the platform with that link, and they can provide some documentation, some evidence. So from I see that the GRC platform is really quite strong for... Um, everything to do with internal control um, and probably governance as well because or compliance because all those things about compliance, you have to have a certain number of controls, right? especially if you're in the UK Bribery Act uh, or you just got hit by the SEC and they say that you need to put things in place for the under the FCPA. Uh, you want to prove that you've got those controls going on, so all of that will be documented in there and the workflow will be set up in their system. So I think for me it's the only system will really come across as flexible enough for you to put in any kind of controls that you want and easy to automate that workflow. Does that make sense? It does. Um, we have a special bonus question. Okay. And I perhaps have more insight now after <laughs> you told us your husband is French, but um, what, uh, how did you end up in Ho Chi Minh City and what's it like living uh, as an expat in Ho Chi Minh City? Um, so Ho Chi Minh City is um, so the second part of the question. Like, what's it like being an expat? It's it's really easy being an expat over here. Actually, I must admit, uh, I have four kids. Um, the oldest one is nine, so they're not old. They're quite little. Uh, so when you're an expat over here in Asia, it's very easy to get care, like help to look after your kids, do your cleaning and doing all of that stuff. So you you can go and have your family and still be like a teenager, (laughs) which is, um, which is quite, you know, uh, it's just loads of things like that. It's very easy. Um, The standard of living for an expat is, is, is kind of a, a bit too high compared to the locals, we're going to say, but um, 
No, it's very nice, and and you're not too far from the beaches. You're like it takes about two hours to get to the beach. I, I would say though that it is very polluted, and uh, very crowded, and um, and very hot. So it's always like 35 degrees, 40 degrees. Always extremely hot. Lots of lots of mosquitoes. Lots of dengue fever. Surprisingly, I've never had it. Um, but yeah. But apart from that, no, it's a it's an easy place to live. The people are very nice, very friendly, very polite. Um, and the crime rate is extremely low, so it's also a safe place to live. Um, so yeah, Ho Chi Minh is a good place. And why did I end up in Ho Chi Minh is because my husband used to be the managing director for Aiden Services, which is a facilities management company set up by a French guy um, and based in Shanghai and also over here in Vietnam. So we came down so he could be the country manager for that six years ago. Claire, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this okay. episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on your company, or really any of the topics we've touched upon, and certainly your book, uh, what would be the best way for them to find out? I think the best way is just to send me an email. Yeah, just send me an email. Uh, my email address is C, C for Claire, J for Joanne, W for Wilich, so cjw at afinia.com, and... We'll be happy to answer your email, like questions, whatever, send you links to whatever tools that you need. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to visit me, me on this late hour. I've uh, really enjoyed uh, this conversation, and I hope we can continue it. Yeah, I hope. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Claire's got a ton of resources on her website, and we're going to link to all of those in the show notes. So check them out if you're interested in internal audit, data visualization, or any of the topics we've touched upon today. I hope you'll check out my latest podcast series, The Woody Report, which is a podcast with Karen Woody, well-known securities law professional and securities law professor. I hope you'll check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're coming out with new podcasts literally a couple of times a month, so uh, check it out. In addition to Karen's new podcast, I have another podcast entitled Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.